0: Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. It's not like people were excited about coming in here and tearing down lath and plaster for days upon days to make the ceiling higher. We didn't, we didn't bring in all this money because people are like, I just really want to be comfortable. I'm just tired of setting up and tearing down. Although that is nice to not set up and tear down. I'll admit that. But that wasn't why God did this. God did this for a very specific reason. And that's what we're going to talk about. But before we move forward, I just want to pray and thank him. Thank him for his goodness. Thank him for what he's done. His goodness is he's good whether we have a home or not. For church to me he 's good whether he decides to continue to make much of his son through revolution twenty two or he decides for us to go elsewhere and join the body of believers all over this valley he 's good either way, but he is we believe wholeheartedly that he 's not done with us and that he has something he wants to do in this downtown area and this treasure valley and throughout the world, and he wants to use us in this way and that 's a gift, and we want to just thank him for that so let 's pray God thank you for your goodness thank you for for stirring in the hearts of your body to bring together something that really makes no sense. It's incredible to see how people that maybe weren't connected that showed up right at time when we needed skills to be done, and they had those gifts. It's amazing to think that every time that I had a moment of lack of faith of like, how are we ever going to afford this? You would show up with someone surrendering a massive amount of money that you've given to them to your kingdom purposes here. God, it's a a reminder of just how big and beautiful your community is, that there were 13 other churches that said, we believe in what God is doing here, and we want this to stay here. God, for the many people that served countless hours, the the amount of time that I know my wife is excited to have me back in some ways. I just pray that we never lose sight. That wasn't our strength. That wasn't our doing, and it wasn't for us. It was for you. And I just thank you. I thank you for the surrender of skills and, and money and talents and gifts and hearts to seeing your church plant roots in downtown Boise. I'm so excited to see what you do for your glory and for your name alone as we continue to push forward. And God, I pray that we wouldn't get complacent and lazy because we have space now. I pray that this would just cause us to plant our feet even further down on a more solid ground and recognize that no matter how solid this floor feels, it's still a temporary place. We long for your kingdom to come, but I pray that as we stand here, God, I pray that we would see your valley moved for your glory. We'd see people that don't know you come to faith in you. We'd see people that have, that have maybe wandered or that would be considered prodigals come running back and be received with open arms. God, we'd see you make disciples going into all nations for your glory and your glory alone. God, we thank you for this space, and I pray, I pray that we do not waste it. We praise you for what you're doing. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue to work forward and moving into what we wanted to kind of talk about as a church. And again, the reason why we, we stepped into this is because many people have come and been a part of what Rev has done at the beginning, and, and they've been a part of going through it, and some of you are still here. And then there have been those that are new that have never, ever really been, and they're just kind of figuring out what it means to be a part of this community. And we wanted to just pause and spend a few weeks talking about our name, and now that seems weird, but the reason why I say talk about our name is not so that we can, at the end, leave with excitement about our name, but with excitement about the fact that the name has everything to do with what God has done. And two weeks ago in the park, if you were there, we talked about the idea of this revolution, that the world was clamoring for a revolution. There was darkness and lost and no hope and brokenness, and, and no matter what people did, they always saw themselves falling short of the glory of God, falling short of pleasing God. No matter how many sacrifices were done through the sacrificial system, no matter how many laws were tried to be followed, we always fell short. And there was this need for a revolution, a revolt, something that would, that would overturn everything. And that was when Jesus comes to the earth. And Jesus comes to the earth, lives a perfect life. He doesn't sin at all. He is fully God and fully man. He's sacrificed on the cross so that, his, that God's judgment on sinners can be poured out on him so that we can stand in righteousness before God. And this is the very revolution that we needed to be a part of. And this took the world and turned religion upside down or right side up, whichever way you want to look at it. And in the end, our role, our purpose is just to take part in that revolution. There's nothing that will revolt against what Jesus has done. Everything will try and and they will fall short. The only revolution that will happen to revolt Jesus' revolution is when he comes back a second time. He's the one that will end that. And our purpose and our role, like we said two weeks ago, is just to take part in that We're to give ourselves to that. We're to recognize that that while we have breath in our lungs, God has a desire for us to serve him and to make much of him and to bring glory to him through our lives. That's our job. And this week we're going to talk about specifically how we are to do that, what it means for us to do that. And again, as we look at our name, we don't hope to elevate the name of Revolution 22. That's just an extension of his church. We want to elevate the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And that's what our goal is. And so revolution is there. Now, many of you didn't know this, the 22 is actually because of Scripture. It's in Matthew 22. We have said from the beginning, we will be a part of this revolution, and we're going to do it by what Matthew 22 says. So as we get ready to read in there, I want to give you a little context, a background where it is. Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. There's already been the Hosanna moment, the donkey. Everything's great. And he comes into the temple, and he, he expresses, many people that are angry love to use this scripture, right? Because he comes in and flips over tables, and like, yeah, see, Jesus can be angry. He doesn't sin in his anger, so good luck with that one. But he, he goes and turns over these tables, he heals the blind, he does all these things, and then he leaves, and he comes back the next day, and he starts going into all these parables and these ideas of teachings, showing who will and who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And the religious leaders of this day, the, the people that understood the Old Testament and the prophets, they understood the 613 laws that God commanded out of his scriptures. They were well versed in it. Many of them had most of it memorized. These leaders are finding, the scriptures tell us that they're looking for a way to entrap Jesus so that they can kill him. Even though they didn't have right to kill. They had to go before Rome. That was the one thing that they couldn't do. But their court system was still in place. And they're, they're trying to find a way to trap him. And so at the end of it, when Jesus comes back after he's turned over all the tables for people selling money in the church and saying they're doing, they've turned the, the place of worship into a house of, of wolves selling for things. He comes back, and the religious leaders, three different groups come with these kind of the, the Hail Mary of questions, the long questions, the questions that they feel like, if we can get him to answer this question, there's no way in their mind that he can't answer it or not answer it where it won't cause us to trap him and give us cause for him to be killed. And so the first two groups come and they ask these questions. And in each question, Jesus answers them with a question and puts them and stumps them. And and every single one of them, they've been more than silenced. And so this last question is the question that we're going to look at. This is where the Pharisees, the, the ones that knew it all, the ones that had understood. In fact, the Pharisees were gathered together in hopes to be a people that would point to what it means to love God, to obey his commands. These Pharisees had lost their way. And all they saw in Jesus wasn't a Messiah. They saw trouble. They saw someone that was causing them to to think about not only their religion, but their heart as well. And Jesus says, "See, they come to these questions, and this is where we pick up in the text. This is the question that comes. So verses 34 through 40 out of Matthew chapter 22. But When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them a lawyer. This guy was so smart. He knew the law. He knew the scriptures. And he asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus answers him perfectly. He answers him true Mosaic law. He answers him true to Jewish tradition. He he literally goes to the very spot that every single one of them would have known. The the Shema. The Hero Israel. The Lord our God is one. This is something that every single Jewish person and the Pharisees especially had been repeating every single day, over and over again, multiple times of the day. Our Lord, our God, is one. We shall love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, over and over and over again. And Jesus just says, just in case you're wondering, on these two commandments rest all those 613 you're worried about. On these two things you experience all of it. And so he, he answers it perfectly. But what's really interesting, and this is what we're going to talk about today. By answering it perfectly, it puts you and I in a really difficult spot. Because the you shall love your God is not a suggestion, it's a command. And I don't know about you, but, but love seems to be a fairly tricky thing. In fact, I, I, I bet I would assume that if I were to ask everyone to say, what's the best way you felt loved, that many of us would have very different ways of how we feel love or express love. I bet if we tried to ask people to define love, we might have some church answers, but if we really felt like, what does it mean for us to love, we would answer this. I would assume that even some spouses would answer that differently. I'm not starting, trying to start a fight here. they saying love is incredibly complex. In fact, most of you, if you're young in here in your college, you're like, I want to get married. And you're thinking, I want to fall in love, and it's just going to be beautiful, and everything's going to happen, and we're going to have this wonderful wedding. We're going to love each other forever, and you're sitting next to someone that's been married for many years and saying, you have no idea what love is. Let me show you what it looks like. See, love is incredibly complex, which maybe it's just me when I read this. I almost, get, I almost find trouble with the idea of him commanding me to love him. If you picture this, Jen and I, when we got up on our wedding day, I didn't look at her and say, you will love me, woman. I don't think that would have gone well. Just just say that. I wouldn't have commanded her to love me. I wanted her to love me because she wants to love me. This is where people get in trouble, is we want love. We want to experience love. But it's so complex, so difficult, so hard to understand. And yet God right here says, you shall love me. And in case you're wondering, this love transcends emotions. This is the love of will. This is pure love. This is perfect love. This is the highest kind of love. It's the love of purpose. And it's the noblest and the highest and the self-sacrificing love of what which is right and that which is worthy This love is so profound and so big. We use love so flippantly. Like, I love a hamburger. I'm not going to lie. I love hamburgers. I also love my wife. I hope those are different. We hope that they're different, but yet we use the same very word. You see what I mean? Love is complex. And if we're going to understand what God has for us and his purpose for us, we have to understand what does it really mean for us to love him, and why, why can God command us this? Why, did, why does he even have a right to command us besides the fact that he's God? And that's what I want to look at today. And Then we'll spend the rest of next week, the next couple of weeks defining what it means and how we are to love him, what those commands are, and what it means to do it with your neighbor as well. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. If you think about it, God made us to love He literally made us to love. It's why we we want to love so many different things. It's why we get in so much trouble, because we find ourselves loving things that aren't worthy of that love. We see people that won't receive love, that will take love, will use love for their own purposes. But God made us to love. So maybe as we dig in and we figure out, how could a God who is so good and so amazing command love out of me as someone's imperfect? First off, I will struggle always to love him because I'm imperfect and I'm incapable of loving well on my own. How could God command that? If you look at maybe if we could understand better what love of god looks like god in his word and his grace has given us his scripture that actually tells us what love is first john five three says this it says for this is the love of god that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome so to love god we have to follow him in his ways so if a early century jew heard this he would have thought of the 613 commandments okay if you want to love god these 613 follow them Obey them. Submit yourselves to them. What we can say for the church today is when you open the scriptures, anything in here that commands of us to encourage, to love, to, to be patient, to be kind, those are the things he commands of us. He commands of us to, to operate in these ways. And so he's literally saying that by keeping his commandments, that means we actually love God. So he's, in a way, saying the very thing we're talking about here is just keeping his commandments. And, and again, it it feels a little weird, so I want to display display love by keeping commandments. Now, I understand that as a parent. Like, I know that my kids, I want them to obey me, not because I want them to fear me, but I want them to love me. And I want them to believe that I know what's best, or this season, because of my experience, I know what's better than their little minds have, have maybe matured to yet. And so I I feel like, in a lot of ways, that makes sense. Okay, so, so to love God, I have to obey him. I have to submit myself. Well, it makes sense. You can't say that you love someone if you don't obey him. I can't say I love my wife if I don't obey the command of the covenant in marriage. That would be the exact opposite of that. But why would God command us to do this? How come he commands it? Maybe we shouldn't be asking how he could, but maybe the better question is why. Why would God command us to love him? Maybe we won't ever answer how, but but why would he command us to love him? Well, he gives us an answer to that. He gives us a lens with which we can see why he would command this of us, and that's in John 15. He says in John 15, 10 through 11, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide. That word abide means remain. You will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That maybe be full is, is kind of a poor translation. It actually means overfull, like spilling out. The pictures of a cup overflowing because it keeps getting added to it. So here we have, this is maybe why God commands us to love. Would anyone argue that God knows you better than anyone else? Most of us would say, okay, we can settle on that. God knows me better than anyone else. He knows me better than my parents. He knows me better than my, my wife. He knows me better than my kids. And I think the reason why we can say that is because the psalmist tells us that, that God knit us together in our mother's womb. Scriptures would go on and say that God knows every single thought that you have. He knows the deepest, darkest parts of your heart, and yet he still loves us. So there's no question that God knows you or me better than anyone else. And so we see here then, okay, well, then maybe this is what God's doing. He created me. He knows what's best for me. And now he's saying, if you want to remain in my love, obey me, and you'll experience joy. So maybe that's why God commands love is because he knows that ultimately we'll experience a joy, not a cheap happiness that we all search out and other things, a true, founded concrete, two feet standing on it, joy. Maybe that's why God commands us to love him, because he knows that the only way that we'll really truly f- experience the joy that all of us are clamming for, that the world is is s- just tirelessly seeking out in other things, maybe that's why, because he knows that this is where our joy will be full. And the reason why I say maybe is because I actually, I actually struggle with that a little bit. I just spent the whole week teaching at base, talking about the character and nature of God, and one of the things that every student in that class would say is, is, is about what I'm about to say. They would say, okay, we heard that over and over again. This book, this scripture, it's not about you or me. It's about him the Bible, we are a joyful partaker of his divine nature. We are a joyful part of the story, and he commands for us how to live, and he talks about what we are to do. But at the end of the day, the entirety of Scripture, the entirety of why we're in this space and why we're doing church, isn't for our own sake. It's for God's glory. It's for his purposes. So to say that God commands me to love so that I can experience joy, and that's why he does it, it feels like it just falls a little short. It makes it a little bit too much about us. Don't get me wrong. I think it's true. I believe wholeheartedly that if you surrender your way to God, you'll see an experience of joy that every single one of us chase in relationships and stuff and money and everything else that so we keep falling short and seeing it not meet the needs. Joy, true everlasting joy, not cheap happiness comes through submission to his spirit and his scripture. And that's what we see. I believe that, but that's not why I think God commands us to do it. How could God command this to me? See I, I think we we get the answer in Scripture. God commands love of us because He's doing something profound and big in us. Look at, look at this scripture with me. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. This is a, a, a section of scripture where Jesus is, is working mightily in the hearts of the Pharisees, and, and there's something going on that I think will help us understand how a good God could command us imperfect beings to love him. I mean, the scriptures tell us that he, we love because he first loved so that's, that's one indication. But here in Luke 7, I think all of us, whether we believe in Jesus Christ or not, or we recognize that we have been following him for a long time, or maybe we're just, we're just questioning, or we don't understand what it means to follow him, or maybe, maybe we're here and we have no idea who this Jesus guy is, and we're just like, I don't know what it is. I feel like all of us can kind of come to a really good, settled conclusion out of this one section of Scripture. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow view, and I believe there's other Scriptures that would help. But I think this one helps immensely. It says on verse 36, chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Listen to this. I want to just pause for a second. They don't even give her name. She's identified by a sinner, as a sinner. I don't think you can really think about that for one second. Just, just pause and think about what that would mean. To just have your name, not even in history, but just to be known as a sinner goes on and says, When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It's a very expensive perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. This isn't a, a cry where like one tear comes down. This is a weeping where she is, has enough tears coming out that she is wetting his feet and having to dry them with her hair. Just take that moment. What if you were at that table and that's what you saw? What would that do in you if you saw some woman that you knew was a sinner, you knew was wrong, and their lifestyle choices were wrong, and you see them sitting with this Jesus person that every single one of the world around them are talking about, and you see this happening? What would your heart do? I think many of us would do the very thing that this Pharisee does wetting her feet and her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, Now, hear this. He doesn't pay attention to the fact that she's weeping. He doesn't pause on the fact that there's obviously something going on inside this woman's heart because she can't keep her eyes dry. Who she's laying before this prophet that he would say is feet dry because there's just too much tears. He just pauses and he thinks to himself, says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, which is, Something that I think we need to pay attention to. I don't, he says it to himself, but Jesus answers him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. See, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed, him, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which of them will love him more? Do you see that? Not will be excited about him, will love him more. Which one will love him more? Simon answered, "'The one, I suppose, for whom is canceled, the larger debt.'" And Jesus says to him, "'You have judged rightly.'" And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, now listen and this, Simon and many others are reclining at the table, and he takes this moment, he just takes the very words that Simon said, well, obviously the person that's forgiven more will love this person more. And he says, okay, great. And he turns to the table, he sits down, looks at this woman. I, I picture him poking, lifting her face up, looking her in the eyes. And he says, "'Do you see this woman?' which is, again, a little bit comical because I guarantee every single person knew she was in the room, right? They, they were there. But why does Jesus say, do you see this one? Because I think he's, he's, he's hitting at the heart of what was struggling with Pharisees. And I think the heart of what we struggle with in religion or we get tired or complacent because of churches and, and buildings or whatever else we find ourselves or reasons to get sucked in by this world, we lose sight of those that are weeping for Jesus. We don't even see him. We don't see the pain or the brokenness or the hurt with which they feel and experience. Instead, all we see is our our theology and our, our condemnation. And he lifts her face up and he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Every single one of the things that she did was something that was expected of anyone when you walked into the house. She was submitted to what was expected when in the house. The Pharisee wasn't. He says, she's done all of this in a more emotionally connected, a more genuine way than you ever could have done it with a brotherly kiss or anything else. And he goes on and says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Now hear that. I almost feel like he says, which are many, for the sake of them thinking that she's a sinner. Her sins, which are many. They're like, yeah, they are. Good. You, you do know it. You do recognize that she is a sinner. Her sins, which are many, and then he goes on and says, are forgiven. Now that would have been a record scratching pause of a moment for every single person in that room. Oh no! This this sinner. She, she she's forgiven because she's she's just weeping with you. What what are you talking about? And he goes on and says, for she has what loved much. She has loved much but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see what happens here? We lose sight of why a God or how a God could command us to to love because he has loved us so well. The reason why you and I lose sight of loving God is because we forget just how much he has done for us through Jesus Christ and the cross. The reason why we Sit at the table like the Pharisees looking at other sinners is because we forget that we were dead in our trespasses and he has made us alive with him in Christ Jesus. And the reason why I believe God or how God can command love is because he has loved us so well. Now hear me on this. I don't want to love him out of some obligatory way. Like, oh, I've got to follow his commands. This is what happens. I want to love him because he has loved me so well. He's loved me so well. No one will ever love me like he has loved me. And so all I want to do is love him. Think about it this way. I can't command my wife to love me, but I can guarantee if I stood up with her 20 years from now, if I've continued to be faithful and shown her what love is, I could say, honey, I want you to love me almost in a commanding way. And she'd probably be okay with it. Now I'm not recommending that. What I'm saying is this, is once you experience love, there's no reason to withhold it. Once you've been loved beyond compare, there's no reason to, 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 to not love. When you've been loved so well, so perfectly by a God who knows you so well and knows every single thing you did, he knows the darkest parts of your mind, he knows the sins that you did last night, and he still says, I have an advocate for you in Jesus Christ. You are righteous and holy and blameless. You are my children. I have adopted you in. When you experience a love like that, guys, loving him just seems normal. How could God command a love like that? Because he's loved us so well, he's given us a way to love him back. He's taken an imperfect person like me and all of you, and he said, You are my children. I deem you perfect and complete in Christ, and now love me. And when you love me the way that I created you to love me, you're going to experience a joy that destroys all this cheap happiness that we exchange it for in this world. How can God command us to love him? Because he's loved us so, so well. I wrote it in my notes this way. As a Pharisee, Simon enjoyed a reputation as a godly man. He had significant theological education, had memorized extensive portions of Scripture, exercised rigorous self-discipline, prayed religiously, and tithed meticulously. The sort of things that men admire. The the woman's reputation was sleazy. Her law-breaking was public knowledge. No one mistook her as a servant of God. Though men had desired her, no one admired her. And in front of all of her dinner party, yes, Jesus declared that that debauched woman actually loved God much. While the ritually clean Pharisee loved God little. Why? Simply because the woman believed that she desperately needed the forgiveness of Jesus offered in this gospel, while Simon did not. He who is forgiven little loves little. Hear this. This is so important. The little sentence reveals a mammoth truth for us. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. Let me say that again. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. That is what Jesus is looking for. This is the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. For at its essence, true worship is a passionate love for God, not moralistic rule-keeping or feats of self-discipline. For sinners like us, the fuel of that love is a profound realization that God has made us whole. He has completed us through Jesus Christ, and we can stand in worship of Him. How can a God-command? How can God command us to love him? I think because he has loved us so perfectly. Why would I want to love that God, even when he commands it? Because of the love I've been experienced. Too many of us stand on that hilltop like the Pharisee and say, look at all the great things I've done, as opposed to the tax collector beating his chest saying, I need you, Jesus. This is what we're going to continue to do as a church. We're going to be relentless about pushing into the love of God, and over the next few weeks, we're going to define what it means and how he commands us and what it specifically means to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors, as We're not going to change the channel. We're not going to move on from this. We're going to continue to let Christ crucified to lead us in everything we do. We're going to continue to push into God in this way. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't even know who this Jesus is, but the, but the idea of God commanding love really really doesn't sit well with me, but the idea of him loving me in spite of what I've done overwhelms me, would you give yourself to that overwhelming feeling? Would you let yourself just fall on him? No more hardness, no more fear of what man may think, no more fear of what not having the answers to all your questions. Just give yourself to him. No one will ever love you better than he has, and no one will ever sustain you as well as he can, and nothing will ever bring you true joy except him. There is no hope without it. And if you're here today and you've been following the Lord for a long time, you said, "I believe that Lord is my. I believe that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior." Then, then stop change, exchanging His true love for cheap happiness. Stop getting sidetracked by things and stuff and people, and give yourself to living a life of obedience, not because you you are obligated to do so, but because you so excitedly do so because He's loved you so well. Think about it. If you've ever been loved really well by someone, the first thing you want to do is love them back. Say, like, oh, I just, I can't believe my wife did this. I want to do this for her. I want to do this for her. That's how love moves in us with God. Because we're reminded that we weren't in the hospital sick. We were in the more dead. And He took us in our sinfulness and said, I want you. You are my child. You are my son and you are my daughter. And I love you and I will clothe you in righteousness. And I'll put you into the throne room of God and you can experience me forever that is a compelling love and that's what we're going to give ourselves to so as the band comes up and we get ready to worship I want to encourage you to worship God not just in voice but worship him in your life I want to encourage you to stand in confidence and boldly proclaim his goodness because of what you've experienced in new life in him not for show for someone next to you to be like what's wrong with that person but for your not obligation but your submission to the goodness of God and love he has shown you just let it overflow in you let it spill out in you. Don't go through the motions. And we as a church, we're going to give ourselves to his love. We're going to continue to push and push and push for his love and that his name will be glorified and not ours. We believe wholeheartedly that God has kept us. He has brought us to this place, not so we can make much of our name, but so that we can make much of his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. Forgive me in the ways I've forgotten that. Forgive me in the ways that I have... I have, I have, have. Question whether or not you truly love me, whether or not you 're good in my actions or in words, however that 's come across God would you just would you just forgive me as I know you do through Christ, but would you allow me to see you in the goodness and the view that you have given us, which is you have brought a sinful man like myself into a whole relationship with you God for the for the individuals that are in here that don 't know you or think they know you, but they're afraid to really give you submission to their life. They're too afraid of what, what they may lose, God. Would you show them that the things they're holding on to are of no value and the only thing we should cling to is you? God, for the people that don't believe in you, for the people that um, question your goodness, would you show them that there's nothing they could do, think, or have done that is too far from your grace? Would you show them that even in the most horrific situations, you still bring about life. You showed us that in the cross of Jesus Christ. There was nothing more horrific than a perfect, sinless person paying for the sins of every other person. But something so beautiful and profound. God, for us as a church, I pray that we would never lose sight of what you're doing. God, don't let us waste what you've given us. Help us to be faithful, obedient children to you. And in doing so, help help, help us to see just how loving that is to you. Because God, all I want in my life and all I want for this church is for you to be loved. In doing so, God, I believe this world will be changed. I believe this valley will be changed. I believe our neighborhoods and our families will be changed. And at the end of the day, people won't say the name of Revolution 22. They'll say the name of Jesus Christ, the only name that matters. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.